And Malcolm Honline is in Jerusalem. He is the executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us on a Friday morning from Yerushalayim here at JM in the, JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. As always, good to be with you, and especially from Yerushalayim, which is beautiful today. Sunny, warm. Anybody who's not here for our show, I'm making a mistake. <laughs> not too late to come later. It begs. It begs. It begs the It begs the question where you're going to be for Rosh Hashanah, but I won't put you on the spot. Uh, so uh, today, of course, the funeral of Shimon Peres uh, seemed like it was a pretty lengthy lineup of speakers. Uh, not quite sure who decided that the program should close with the President of the United States. Found that interesting. Maybe it's protocol. I'm sure you could explain that to us. Uh, give us first, uh, I have some specific questions, but give us first an overview of being there in the crowd and saying goodbye to a, a very important figure in the history of the State of Israel. Right. And I know it's somewhat controversial. Uh, he is somewhat controversial with people who did or did not like some of his activities, but nobody can deny the pivotal central role that he played in the establishment of the state, in establishing the IDF, the Navy, the MONA, the nuclear program, so much of, of what enabled Israel to be what it is today from a security standpoint, from an economic standpoint as a minister, of developing the uh, startup nation concept, fostering it, uh, and in, in Israel's international diplomacy. He, I had seen, I went to the hospital last week, uh, when I was in Israel for a few hours, and uh, it was clear that his, his situation was very critical. And I've had a working relationship with him of over 30 years, or maybe even 40, and I will tell you that there were many instances that if people knew uh, what, what Shimon said and did, it would give them a different impression. You know, he was truly a, a nationalist. He cared about Israel. He was a, a Zionist through and through. He was Ben-Gurion's uh, assistant. He held virtually every position in government, twice a, a prime minister, president. Um, and the fact that 60 leaders from around the world, 60 countries, that President Hollande and the King of Spain and uh, President Obama, President Clinton, many others, came on very short notice to to be there today to pay tribute to him, at the lasting tribute, the final tribute. And... Um, I think is uh, a remarkable statement. It's a yeah. statement about him and also about Israel. It does transfer in that regard yeah, no question. to the uh, feelings about Israel and the way I can think of many other world leaders of much bigger countries who died and did not receive the kind of uh, send-off, the kind of of Leviah that we saw today. Yeah, and, and and I know I've been waxing philosophic over the last couple of weeks, especially since his stroke, and we've had the opportunity to speak about the early days, so to speak. Um, but um, but I I have to acknowledge the fact that uh, that he he represented such a unique aspect of modern Jewish history, modern Israeli history, and I I say to you something similar to what I said last week and the week before. If you would have told our grandparents that there will be a time very, very soon, certainly in a historical sense, really, really soon, where tens and almost, you know, a hundred, 
uh, you said 60, uh, world leaders would come to Israel to pay tribute to a leader of the state of Israel, they would never have believed it. And, and that alone, I think, especially now, now's a good time to wax philosophic. The new year's about to begin. Uh, I, I, I think that that is one of the most important lessons from today's events. I think you're, you're right. And, uh, and the fact that the President of the United States comes for five hours to a country uh, is also a statement about relationship. And people will, of course, describe... Um, political motives to, to what everybody does. But there are times when things are, are above that, and and it does reflect, I think, on the nature of the relationship, this the special status that the Shimon Peres has enjoyed or earned um, is somewhat unique, but I think it, it has a much broader meaning. And the yeah. message to the world, especially here in the Arab world, is very important that yeah. about the uniqueness of the credibility, the status of Israel. Yeah. Malcolm Holmline is with us live from Jerusalem, having just gotten back uh, from the uh, funeral of Shimon Peres. Um, you know, we, we often refer and speak about, um, you know, changes that especially Israeli leaders make in their attitude towards certain things. We'll say attitude toward peace, although that's such a bad way of putting it, but, you know, for the purpose of this conversation, I think everyone will get the context. And we talk about the younger Begin, you know, versus the later in years or older Begin, and the younger Sharon certainly versus the the older Sharon, and to an extent, the younger Rabin, the older Rabin. Is there, and, and you had this relationship with him, and I remember some some really trying times in your relationship with him uh, in the, I would say, in the early 90s. Um, would you say there was that marked difference that, that he as a young politician and active member of the Israeli political scene was different than what the older Paris became? It's a very interesting question. It probably deserves a, a panel discussion, not a, a simple answer. But, you know, the young Paris w- was considered a hawk in many respects, or would have been by today's standards, in that, you know, he focused on on building Israel's military capacity to, to, to defend itself. Remember, it came from zero. Uh, and there are interesting things, by the way, to know that, that his name was Persky, and they say that he was a great-great-grandson of, of Rav Chaim Volozhner, but his, his grandfather was certainly a, a very religious and pious person. And, uh, you know, he reflected that cultural upbringing and association with it and always showed respect for uh, Ramadan in his, uh, during his lifetime. Uh, but so in the early years, he was, you know, devoted to building the military capacity of Israel. Later on, he tried to build the, the peace capacity because he really believed that that was essential for Israel's long-term stability and place in the, in the, commun- in the, in the Middle East. Uh, whether people like Oslo and don't like Oslo, there's plenty of case to be made uh, for the debate, but you know, his motivation was clear. He, um, you know, he, 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 up to the last days, was a visionary in, in many respects. I mean, he pushed the nanotechnology agenda early on when none of us knew what it even was talking about. Um, or more recently about brain research as being at the forefront of technology and that Israel must be engaged in it, just as he pushed, you know, some of the high-tech uh, endeavors early on. So 
he did go through various stages, and people mellow with age, and sometimes they become more tough, sometimes they become less tough right. in some of the positions they take. I, I don't know that you can point to, to a shifting period, because remember in the 80s, he, he did the Oslo, the London Accords, which were, frankly, uh, much better than people appreciated, and I, he, he invited me to his room once in, in New York to read the actual document, and he said to me then, this is 1982 or 83, he said, just understand, they can reject this deal, Israel can reject it, that every subsequent deal is going to be worse than the one before. Oh, and, and sure enough. So, true. And then, every and, subsequent deal, yeah. Israel has to give more and get less. Yeah, start with Madrid, right, just a few years after that. Right. And all the offers of the Barack Agreement, the right. offer the uh, Olmert's offer, others, each one was far more generous than what you would have had to give up in 1982 if, the, if that agreement had gone through. What did you think of the decision by Mahmoud Abbas to attend the funeral? And was it at the urging that he needs some prodding from world leaders to actually make the move to come to the funeral? Well, it was very well received here. Uh, only the president, only President Obama mentioned him, uh, which was uh, somewhat surprising, but again, they couldn't start mentioning all the world leaders. But for him, it was, uh, I think, it, people were commenting on the fact that, that, that neither Netanyahu or others mentioned him, uh, especially because, you know, the Israeli Arabs in the Knesset boycotted the, the session, blaming Perez for the Nakba for the, from 1948 and his role then and since then in Israel's defense and, and standing against the uh, building up Israel's armies against the Arab onslaughts that took place in those years. So they they, did, they boycotted it and yet Abbas came. I have no doubt that there was American prodding and others perhaps who encouraged him to go and said it would be the right thing. Uh, but he, and, I, and I think he insisted on an invitation from the family not to be coming as a guest of the government. Uh, but people were really not there as guests of the government. They were there, everybody was there in their own capacity. And uh, Abbas did not speak, obviously. He, he just came and, and then left. So his presence, you know, is seen as, as significant given all of the factors around it and the, the, the criticisms that, that we see pretty widespread. Uh, among some of the Arab populations. I watched the video of his encounter with the Netanyahu's uh, multiple times early this morning, and I thought they, frankly, I thought both handled it pretty well. Yes, I think it was done very smoothly, the operation of the whole thing, and, you know, considering that they had such short notice and you had so many delegations and planes flying in and cars flying in and everybody wants to be treated special. Uh, I sat down and, and the guy next to me was uh, a foreign minister of a country. The guy behind me was uh, the president of the Senate of a very big country. The person in front of us was uh, president of, a, of an African country. And they were sitting on the buses with us because, you know, security requirements were very tight and how people got around. But the guy who got in and got, got through everything. <laughs> so, it, you know, it, it was not an easy thing to do, and I think that they basically pulled it off well. I think most of the speeches were sensitive and, and meaningful. Uh, some raised issues that were troubling. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope.
Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM Dial Broadcasting Live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org, and of course on the NSN app. And don't forget, in just a few weeks, we will be uh, available to you exclusively through the Nahum Siegel Network. Make sure you have the NSN app or one of the other hundreds of methods to tune into us on a daily basis. Uh, anybody outside of the New York and New Jersey area listening right now, it will completely unaffect you. It will be a seamless transition. We're just trying to make it as seamless as possible for everyone. On the topic of uh, bringing things up that uh, you know could be taken to be political positions, uh, I mean, the President of the United States did use the opportunity to quote-unquote encourage peace talks, spoke about unfinished business, uh, that Shimon Peres left here, and obviously with Abbas there, the you know the words had more strength to them. What did you think of the injection of that type of political position into the eulogy? Um, I frankly have to read it more carefully because it was hard always to he- at all times to hear it. But um, I think that that raising it is one thing, but he he, he mentioned it more than once. He raised it several times, and I don't know whether this is an indication of a future agenda, or this is just his expressing his uh, point of view, or, or you know, genuinely interpreting Paris's uh, priorities, uh, and in the presence of Abbas. But it seemed that that he he um, that the speech was somewhat political at an occasion that was not meant to be. Yeah, uh, were, were there other? I mean, you, you, you obviously, you know, you heard all the speeches. I, I frankly, you know, uh, I was up early enough to watch the Obama speech. Did not see the others. Um, I, I mean, what could you tell us in general about uh, uh, about the presentations, and and especially? I'm not, I'm not speaking about family members, and even necessarily um, uh, those from Israel. But were there other world leaders included? Were there other uh, other people who you might not expect? to have been in the lineup that spoke at today's funeral? There were none in the lineup. The, the only ones who spoke were President Clinton, President Obama, Netanyahu, President Rivlin of Israel, the Speaker of the Knesset. That That is a protocol issue that the Speaker of Knesset uh, addresses. And um, and then the, the, his three children spoke, and Amos Oz, the author and writer, who was a very close friend of his. But they were the only ones who were allowed to speak, and you had many heads of state there who were repeatedly acknowledged more in general than by specific name, even. So, no, there was uh, almost no recognition of the of most of the dignitaries who were there. And aside from Abbas, uh, you mentioned sixty in in terms of number, but there must have been you know one or two that really surprised you. I mean. I don't know if, you know, representations or representatives, I should say, from places like Turkey or Russia or, you know, other Middle Eastern countries. I know that Jordan and Egypt were not represented, right? Some conjecture that they would be. There's a peace agreement with Israel. Some thought that they might oh, be. I, did, did I met with the foreign minister of Egypt. I met with the foreign minister of Egypt. He was definitely there. Uh, there was a minister from Jordan there. It was not the king, which is what people expected. Right. I don't think that they really thought that Sisi would, would come. But uh, I, I spoke to the foreign minister, so I know for sure he was there, along with another minister. And um, I thought it was uh, interesting that Prince Charles came, and the King of Spain, and uh, a few others who, who, a lot of presidents from uh, countries in, in Europe uh, and um, 
there was a delegation from the Moroccan Jewish community. All right, let me wrap up this segment of the conversation with the following, and just, you know, bear with me. Why is the president of Mexico there? I mean, what, 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 what is it that would bring him to a uh, ceremony you know, honoring the, the memory of, uh, of the former prime minister and president of Israel? I could tell Jim would say he wanted to see how you build a wall. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. I think he, um, <laughs> the relationship with, they'll get it later. Yeah, they but got The it. relationship with Mexico and Israel has been growing stronger, and many leaders felt that this was a place they wanted to be and to, to join it. And the, you know, again, of course, it was on such short notice. The fact that every, any one of them was there was, to me, a remarkable statement. 60 or 70 private jets of, of world leaders flew in in a 24-hour period, uh, less than 24 hours. Uh, President Obama arrived at 5.30 or so in the morning and left immediately after the, the ceremony. So he was here for five, six, seven hours altogether. Um, uh, Trudeau others were or I didn't see him but I, I understand that he was supposed to be there um, and again the, the the reports about who was there and wasn't there haven't been clarified sufficiently I think people should wait till they see the actual published list right got it um, all right a couple other things the uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu went out of his way this week uh, to discuss that his cooperation or seeming cooperation with Russia is uh, in no way any type of knock or, uh, or snubbing of the United States and the value of the U.S.-Israel relationship is one that we always speak about practically on a weekly basis here. Uh, did he have to go out of his way to, uh, to give a heads up to the U.S.? They shouldn't worry about him uh, associating more and more with Putin at this time? And I think it's because of the press speculation and because people were uh, interpreting it and, and the fact is that the U.S.-Israel relationship is the core relationship of Israel security, and I think you know it's a message to the region, a message uh, to to the U.S. and Congress that uh, is not a question of substituting one for another. Israel should have relations with as many countries as possible. It should both be powerful countries. Uh, there are many important links, including a million Russian Jews in Israel, that uh, bind the countries. So the relationship with Russia is very important, especially Russia's role in Syria. But I think his message was, don't misinterpret this as, as being an end run or meant to be an insult to the president uh, that we enhance our relationship with Russia. And the prime minister has gone out of his way after his visit to the United Nations last week. He spent part of the weekend uh, visiting with both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. He's gone out of his way to uh, emphasize, no matter who wins this election in early November, Israel will have a friend in the White House. Uh, Did you think it was simply uh, silly on the part of uh, members of the press that they made a big deal about the fact that his meeting with Trump was much longer than his meeting with Hillary in general? Can you tell us anything? I'm sure you've spoken to him since then. Can you tell us anything about his impressions of the two candidates? I think that uh, what I heard is that the um, environment was very positive. The exchanges were amicable. They they did discuss issues. Uh, they uh, did not get into the politics of, of this election. It's something Israel stays out of. Um, I think it, it's an indication that uh, of the relevance of Israel in the political decision making in America. That there are many millions of Jews and many more non-Jews 
who care about what the policy with Israel will be. And this way, uh, by meeting both, he shows that uh, there will be continuity in the relationship, that he's already met both parties and uh, and can develop ties and the relationship very quickly thereafter. After the election, uh, was it? Uh, I don't know. Surprising to you, or did you expect that his name would be mentioned by Donald Trump in the debate? It was the the only time Israel really came up was when Trump went ahead and proclaimed that uh, the prime minister would not be a happy camper regarding the Iran deal. I think that the, that in future debates there will be greater emphasis on foreign policy issues. That's what I've been told. This one was primarily dealing with domestic affairs, and as you said, very little on foreign affairs. So I anticipate that uh, you'll see more of a discussion uh, about it. Why is Ahmadinejad being encouraged not to run again for president of Iran? He's not being encouraged. He's been banned. <laughs> He's eliminated from uh, uh, from the race uh, because the. Uh, the Ayatollah said so, which is enough of a reason. And the um, there were differences before at the end of his term, which is one of the reasons why he sort of disappeared. What's interesting in, in Iran also is the speculation about a successor to the Supreme Leader, and there's word that the Iran Revolutionary Guard, the IRGC, and others gotten behind Ibrahim Raisi, uh, who is a very hardline Iranian who oversaw the massacre of thousands of people, supposedly political prisoners, in the summer of '88, and he was given the responsibility to um, uh, as a to be a prosecutor general for most of his career. He's 56 years old, I think, and he used to discipline the mullahs who got out of line. And one of his responsibilities was to oversee a large charitable foundation which has an estimated $15 billion in it. So uh, as the, uh, we will see whether there will be other candidates who will emerge, but this is a, a very interesting development when people are saying, you know, what will happen if, if in fact, how uh, many is so sick? Will it be a succession process? Will they pick somebody beforehand? Well, I think we may see the picking right now. And if that picking comes through, it will be, he's regarded as more radical, less radical, or just the same? I think he's being seen as more hardline, uh, and he the very fact that he's backed by the Iran Revolutionary Guard would give credence to that, and he is uh, his history would certainly underscore it. So Iran is not moving towards any kind of moderation, and all the promises you know that after the JCPOA and after the deal, we're going to see much more moderation on their part. So far, that's not in evidence. Well, yeah, I mean that's the big question, and you know because if you pay careful, if you pay attention to I don't know if I could say the majority of the media, but uh, th- there's so much rhetoric out there about the success of the Iran deal. And, you know, you're one who I would assume, you know, uh, until now continues to be hardline uh, against considering the Iran deal a success at this point. Well, it hasn't proven to be a success, and now there are reports of even more money being transferred, very large uh, sums of money. And uh, people believe that the, the agreement emboldened Iran to take even stronger stands uh, against uh, its neighbors. We're seeing the escalation of the tension with Saudi Arabia and with others uh, in Yemen, and 
and, and I think that the JCPOA, according to all the information we're getting, is not benefited the people. The economic conditions of the people is remains terrible, but it does enhance the, the ability of the uh, Ron Rubicheri Guard, the Ayatollah and his household, and the people who follow him, to to continue their uh, aggressive behavior, their incitement of terror, their support for Hamas, so certainly for Hezbollah. We've seen more shooting across the. Uh, Golan Heights, it's still not, we don't believe, we think it's errant fire, but it's not an unintended completely, it's, it's much more than that, and so it's very hard to prove beyond what is recognized as the success that part of the, the dismantling, but if they are in fact able to make much more advanced centrifuges, if they're able to put them in place, and therefore will speed up the process nine more years or so, it, it's gone in a blink, and Iran will be able to break out as a full-fledged nuclear program. Uh, ben Hubbard writes it in the New York Times, and I need you to tell us if you think it's true or not and why. Uh, many Saudis see the passage of the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act overriding President Obama's veto as irreparable damage to a long relationship. What do you think? Could you say that again? I didn't miss the last part. Saudis see the passage of Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act overriding President Obama's veto as irreparable damage to a long relationship. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't hear the, the thing, the reference. Yes, the, the JASTA legislation, which enables the families, the 9-11 families, to sue uh, Saudi Arabia. The president vetoed it. The Congress overrode the veto. I think it's the first time. Right. And... Uh, the Saudis reacted as one would expect harshly. There are no law cases yet brought, but the concern that uh, they, that the president and supporters raise is that other countries will then sue the United States, and then and maybe Israel. Others will be deemed to be uh, responsible for the acts, and, and therefore could uh, open a Pandora's box. Here we're saying, look, the, the, the families that have suffered so much, they should have a right to go to court and let the courts decide whether they're entitled to some sort of uh, compensation. Even Senator Schumer and others were um, uh, very much in favor of the override and, and took uh, leadership roles in that. So the Saudi reaction is, is one of uh, upset about the passage and, and the, I mean, of the veto, but it's not going to change the fundamental relationship. Saudi Arabia needs America too much, especially now against Iran. So I do not anticipate that this will make for a fundamental change in that relationship. Um, there's a um, uh, the perception, of course, is that there's a responsibility on the part of Saudi Arabia when it comes to 9/11. Uh, has I mean, Saudi Arabia has never acknowledged anything even close to that. Correct? They have never, in all these 15 years, they have never uh, said anything or indicated anything that would that would. Uh, that would deem them uh, responsible for any of it. Right. And, you know, powerful countries get away with a lot of things. And when there are all sorts of other competing interests, we see now the revelations about Russia's role with the downing of the plane over the Ukraine, or, or uh, uh, we've seen all sorts of other accusations of late. And, you know, there, there's very little accountability for it. Here, so there's two parts. One is the embarrassment, the message to the international community, the assertion of blame, which comes with it, uh, and then there is, of course, the economic impact and the precedent that are set, precedent that may be set by the action. 
Yeah. I I mean you 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 have expressed publicly which way you think this this should have gone or you expected that the White House and Congress would not be aligned on this. I'm trying to I'm trying to get a read on on whether you think this is a good thing no, or knew- or not to to bring Saudi Arabia to its knees in this way. Well, we're not going to. It's not going to bring it to its knees in Saudi Arabia. It has a lot of money, but uh, and and again, there are no cases. Right. So it, it is a, a sensitive and complex question about uh, you know whether this is ultimately good or bad. If if it opens up all sorts of other cases against the U.S. and and some of our allies, but the message is a very important one about culpability. That countries have responsibility to to take the steps to, to prevent such actions to the degree that they can, and when it's such an organized effort. Uh, again, there, there's no proof of cult- culpability yet, and we don't know that the courts will award anything because of this. Uh, and I understand fully the sensitivity to it, but when Congress votes as they are to override a presidential veto, which they've never done before, that means that there is very strong sentiment on the other side. Yeah, no question about that. All right, the uh, year is coming to a close. Our final discussion for 5776. I spoke earlier today on the air with uh, Ambassador Danone at the uh, United Nations, and uh, he indicated that he thinks the year ahead could be a very, very big turning point there. You've indicated, and based on the Prime Minister's words at the UN during his visit, uh, we discussed last week how this, uh, how, how we, we might be facing finally some type of real uh, turnaround or the beginnings of a turnaround at places like the UN. It is interesting and unbelievable to watch Israel standing right now in the international community, something that the Prime Minister pointed out multiple times during that speech. It continues to amaze us. Less than 70 years later, you and I continue to make this point over the last few weeks. It is unbelievable to see the point that Israel has gotten to. Uh, what could you tell us about 5777? Could this, in fact, be a revolutionary year in terms of Israel's relationship in the uh, in the uh, landscape of um, of uh, uh, of countries uh, on this planet, uh, or is every year like that? Every year is so significant with so many episodes and so much going on that something is bound to happen that we would consider historic in the coming year. The answer is yes. <laughs> You used the phrase "could be." I was going to answer "could be," and it could be. It could go anyway. Right now, I think to be optimistic about the UN is still premature. We are working very hard to get the UNESCO resolution rescinded. I think that's a critical test for us, and we have started the drive to end the bias against Israel. The this, the state of resolutions, and we're finding more and more countries that are being sympathetic. We even got a commitment from some foreign ministers that they would support repeal of the UNESCO actions, which, you know, strips the holy places of their Jewish names and and history and Judeo-Christian names. So to expect a revolutionary change in the UN is, I think, a misreading. The fact that Israel was elected to the chair of the Sixth Committee, the fact that the, Israel is running for a, a Security Council seat in 2018, but they have very tough competition, um, these are, are positive signs. But at the same time, we see the ongoing record, the condemnations, the, the resolutions and statements the deploring Israel, and the need for there to be really fundamental reform at the United Nations if it's going to be remain uh, relevant. I think that, that Israel's isolation certainly 
has uh, been broken in many respects. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's accepted in the neighborhood, but in the world as a whole, with the increased relationships in China, India, Japan, uh, certainly with Africa reaching out, and we had in the last uh, weeks uh, so many meetings with African leaders who, who want ties with Israel. Many are visiting Israel uh, and talking about establishing diplomatic r- relations. So on that front, on the side of Israel's isolation and the growing uh, Mediterranean initiative and other initiatives, I think it could bode well. And again, there's no existential threat to Israel coming from, you know, Syria as it was in the past, or Egypt today, which has been more than neutralized. It's very positive and pro-Israel in terms of military and security areas, for sure. So I think that the coming year, we're going to see the maturation of some of the issues we're dealing with, like BDS, I'm afraid that we're going to see an escalation of violence on the campus because they get frustrated by their failures and and the fact that it's not catching on the way they wanted. I think you'll see an expansion of those activities. I'm very concerned about domestic terrorism, not just the lone wolves, but the returning ISIS fighters to Europe, to the United States, and around the world. Uh, uh, So there are a whole range of security issues that I think uh, we have to uh, be concerned about. Uh, A lot will depend on how the economy goes. We're going to see continued turmoil. Syria is not going to be resolved. We're going to see the Sunni Shiite, i.e. Saudi Arabia versus Iran battle, I think, continue to simmer. Nobody wants it to break out full-scale war, it seems, but anything can trigger some sort of reaction, including the the errant fire across the Golan, which Israel responds to uh, uh, regularly. And I think that, that we have a very full agenda awaiting us. It's not going to be a simple year. I, I think with the election and then the transition, we're going to take up a good part of the energy uh, of the in Washington. And what we have to do is make sure people stay focused on the issues and that we not find ourselves further disadvantaged because, you know, we weren't paying attention. Yeah. But again, I think if people look and they want a source, source of real encouragement, Nahum, do, you, do you see the discovery about at Lachish, at Lachish Gate. Again, we see King, King uh, Hezekiah, King Hezekiah's reform, which the which Tanakh teaches us about, and his efforts to centralize the worship, and that it says that he went to there and he broke the, um, the symbols, including the the horns, that he broke off and he put a toilet there. Well, they found it exactly as in. The, uh, they, the, where they had placed the toilet, it was not used as a toilet per se, according to the DNA tests. But it's everything that that the uh, uh, Tanakh tells us, and it says that uh, uh, and that this is evidence of the reform when he wanted everything centralized in Yerushalayim. But if you look at Malachim Days at uh, Kings Two, you will see the descriptions and exactly what they found. So again. Kadesh Baruch God is sending us all these signs, and the rest of the, so much of the world is fighting to cut us off and to deny a past and not to recognize and not give legitimacy. Both the funeral today shows Israel standing and the legitimacy uh, from Africa, from South America, from all over the world they came, and the recovery of our past to guide us in, in, in the future. And I hope that people understand that how we view ourselves and our own clout and our ability when the Miraglim, the story of, of, this, of the ten spies, 
when they said that we were like grasshoppers in their eyes, they were ascribing a view to the Anakim, to the to the giants. The giants didn't say it. It's the Jews, and when they see themselves like that, then of course our oppressors are going to see us uh, in that same vein. So people have to understand that this is a responsibility this year to know, to vote, to get out, to vote. Congressional votes count very much as well. There are a lot of state legislative uh, races. More than that, to make a commitment this year that we're going to do more in our schools, we're going to educate our kids younger and younger, we're going to take the time to, to talk to them about what is going on so that they not become teenagers and harbor a lot of hostile feelings because nobody ever bothered to tell them the truth. Yeah. And that is our strongest one. Excellent. A happy, healthy, sweet new year. We should have a year that we go from strength to strength. Best to your entire family, and we will reconvene, please God, next Friday morning here at JM in the AM. God willing, we look forward to it and to a very successful year and in your new format to have great Hatzlacha. We need you very much. Amen. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. Malcolm Holmline, fittingly enough, wrapping up the year for us from Jerusalem, from the Holy City. He is the Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations.